Uh, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Clay Mackey. I'm part of the pastoral team here. Uh, I oversee the college and career ministry, and I do that alongside of Rich Brown. And today we're going to take a break from Romans, and we're going to head over to another of Paul's letters, the letter to the Philippians. And we've been studying this little letter in our college ministry, and the Lord's been teaching us so much through our study, and uh, we're, you're going to get a bit of that overflow uh, today. And uh, I trust it will be edifying to you. We'll be in Philippians 2. Uh, so if you're not already there, go ahead and turn there. Philippians chapter 2. And this is a passage um, that the Lord's really pressed home in our lives. He's pressed at home. Uh, we, were, we, looked, we looked at this passage several weeks back. And uh, we're excited to bring this to you this morning. Now, when it comes to recent events, I'm sure you've noticed that there's been a surge of renewed interest in national security over the last few weeks, and it started on social media when somebody out west post, started posting pictures of a giant white balloon, um, and later, though, uh, it kind of got serious, right? We learned that the balloon was from China, and it was likely being used for surveillance, it was a developing situation, and the military finally took action and shot it down. Well, what's even more curious is that over the last few days, three more flying objects were identified, and uh, they were shot down very fast. Um, understandably, people were asking questions. I know that I, I was. Uh, what is going on? So, on February 12th, the Department of Defense held a briefing, and it's on the government's website. You can go check that out. And the Department of Defense tried to explain why they had not seen that first balloon sooner, and then also why they had found so many more objects flying in the last few days. And it had to do with the settings on the radar detection system. The radars were set with certain broad parameters. They wanted to filter out smaller and slower moving objects, which makes sense. You don't want every bit of debris and bird flying through your radar system and, and triggering your radars. And they wanted to focus on obvious threats, threats like foreign military aircraft. But those broad settings allowed the slow-moving surveillance balloon to float into U.S. airspace virtually unnoticed. And since then, the report said that they adjusted the parameters. And guess what happened? They found more stuff uh, flying in the air. More flying objects showed up. A simple tweak to the, the radar, a simple tweak to the filtering system revealed that things had been flying underneath that radar. They were undetected, but now that that radar is adjusted, we can identify them and deal with them appropriately. And sometimes, though, if we're not careful and attentive, something similar can happen in the church. We know that as Christ's church, we are always under threat, Right? Satan is always scheming and trying to derail God's people from staying on the mission. He's trying to get us off track from planting churches, from shepherding those churches to maturity, serving each other, evangelizing the community. And we know that this mission is constantly under attack. It's constantly threatened by Satan. He's the enemy of our souls. He's cunning, and so our spiritual radars must be sensitized to his schemes. 
We're on high alert for certain things. For the, the obvious threats. False teachers. False doctrine. Rightly so. These are crucial ways that Satan tries to derail the church. We're also on high alert for things like intimidation and growing opposition from the outside to sort of submit to a way that's contrary to the way that the Lord wants us to walk in the church. So our spiritual radars then are set to pick up the fast-moving, obvious threats to the health and the mission of our church. But do you realize that there are also slow-moving threats? Threats that fly under less sensitive radars. Threats that will certainly undermine the power of the gospel and the power of our witness right here in Lynchburg. Threats that will weaken the overall health of our body. Threats that over time threaten to bring us down. And bring us down from the inside. Well, in the passage before us today, Paul helps us fine-tune our spiritual radar. He helps us dial it in to pick up something that often goes undetected in the church and then weakens our gospel impact in the community and right here amongst ourselves. In Philippians 2, Paul alerts us to the danger of grumbling. As you probably guessed by the title on the screen. He alerts us to this danger of bickering amongst ourselves here in the church or griping about our circumstances at work or even just kind of quietly complaining in our hearts under our breath when things just don't go our way. It's often a common experience in our lives, isn't it? Sometimes, many times, we don't even notice that we're grumbling. We don't even notice we're doing it. So it often flies under the radar, so to speak. But the Lord is going to help us here today from Paul's instructions to the Philippians. And this church needed these instructions, obviously, and that's because there was an issue happening in this church. But the church was very dear to Paul's heart. They, they were some of Paul's greatest supporters. They were dialed in to the mission. From day one, they evangelized the city in Philippi. They often took up uh, offerings for Paul and sent it to him, even out of their poverty, Paul says. So they were committed to the church planting venture. But there had been a conflict that was brewing as of late. Two prominent women in this church were at odds, and they were having some trouble reconciling. And apparently, there were sides developing in the church, because it elicited Paul calling them out very specifically in, um, over in chapter 4 by name. Paul was to make sure that their conflict, and then the grumbling that would, that's been happening, that that would be dealt with, the bickering would, would get solved, so they can get their eyes back on the mission. And, and praise God, that's not the situation at TBC. So I don't want you to think, okay, I'm coming in loaded for bear here because uh, to address something, that wouldn't be my place anyway. Okay? There's no massive church-wide conflict that we're facing. At least not at this moment, by God's grace. There's wonderful unity. But that doesn't mean we all don't struggle with complaining. It's easy to get off track in our hearts. It's easy to start thinking that we deserve better from the Lord or, or to fixate on our circumstances, those ones that we wish would change or those circumstances we wish we didn't have to go through or face. Complaints rise up from our discontent hearts. And that means when we're focused on ourselves, 
than on others, than on Christ's mission. Our complaints then, says Paul, are a subtle threat to living out the Great Commission. So he tells us here that we've got to filter grumbling and complaining. We've got to filter this out of our lives. Look in verse 14. This is the text we're focusing on this morning. Paul writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then he goes on, 15 and following, to tell us why. He says that you may become blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So, we're going to see there's a lot at stake, a lot more than we normally think of when it comes to our complaining. We'll see that a grumble-free life is a powerful life. It's a life that Jesus will use to radiate the gospel in Lynchburg and that he'll use to bring many to faith in Christ that he'll use to build up our body to full maturity. So, let this morning be a recalibration of our radars. And we're going to look at a couple observations here, three observations to be specific, about these verses. We'll hang our thoughts on these observations. They're not, it's not rocket science. But we're looking at three observations. We'll say a grumble-free life is what? Well, first, it's a command, and it's not a suggestion. It is a command, not a bit of good advice, or maybe you could take or leave it. Something we're going to have to give an account for before the Lord. Do all things, Paul says, without grumbling or disputing. So it's clear that Paul's not merely offering us some advice that we can take or leave. This is an imperative, and and he's pressing this on us here to to look at very carefully. And he doesn't pull any punches right out of the gate, does he? Notice how comprehensive he is. Paul looks us square in the eye and tells us that in everything we do, every word we say, everything we pursue in life, all of our relationships, everything must be done without grumbling and without disputing. It's like he's saying we need to put a filter on our hearts and filter out all the bad particles, all that grumbling and complaining and bickering that we do amongst each other. And he's so comprehensive. He doesn't leave us any wiggle room in this command. And we said that Paul's aiming at that low-level dispute that was happening in the church in Philippi. He's saying, look, all of that has to be filtered out. It's all got to go. You've got to reconcile. And even though there's not that same level of dispute happening here at Timberlake, there are still minor skirmishes in the day-to-day, aren't there? Someone inconveniences you. Someone acts rudely toward you. Someone makes a joke about you that you don't appreciate. Someone posts something on social media that has to do with you. Someone excludes your family from something that other families were invited to Or maybe somebody just rubs you the wrong way. It never happens, right? Maybe they're not necessarily doing anything wrong, but their mere presence makes your life harder, more complicated, more awkward. Well, what happens? 
We often grumble about them, don't we? Sometimes we grumble to ourselves in our hearts, that low-level murmuring. Sometimes we grumble to our close friends, Sunday school. Often we grumble to our spouse. But this kind of speech is sometimes so natural that we don't even realize that we're doing it. We say we're just venting, you know, or we're letting off some steam, or we're just being honest, right? But we're actually grumbling. We're complaining against others right here in the body. But grumbling against other people, that's just one way we do this, right? We also complain in a variety of other ways, too. We might complain about our schedule, how busy we are. We might complain about the weather, how little sleep we got the night before, how unreasonable our boss is, how bad you feel all the time, how miserable it is to be single, how hard it is to be married, how difficult it is to have young kids. How sad we are to be empty nesters, you know. It just goes on and on. But Paul is unfazed. It's all got to go, he says. So maybe you think, God, come on, Paul. Like, that's, that's a high bar. Why are you setting this bar so high? Paul knows something. He knows the evils that are lurking in our hearts. He knows the evils that must be identified and repented of. The evils that are producing the grumbling that comes out of our mouth. Have you ever stopped to consider what's actually behind or underneath your grumbling? Why do you grumble? What's going on? That's a question that you need to think about and you need to be able to answer. And here it is. Grumbling is a way that we give vent to our discontented hearts. Grumbling is a way that we give vent, that we give expression to the discontentment, that evil discontentment that's in our hearts. We've not received what we want what we expected to get, what we think we deserved, what we believed would make us happy or we thought would make our lives a little easier or fix our problems. We've missed, it. We've missed out somehow, in some way. We've been inconvenienced or hurt. We're angry about it. And grumbling is a way that we express that. But you know what the scariest thing is about grumbling? Is ultimately, when we complain about anything, those complaints are leveled at God Himself. God Himself. And you might be thinking, where do you see that in the text? Well, it's not directly here, but it's in another place that we think of often when we think about grumbling. When I say grumbling, what do you think about? Children of Israel, right? There's a super clear example of this back in Exodus 16. When Israel was in the wilderness, they started to grumble about food. And the text says specifically that they grumbled against two people, Moses and Aaron. I'll just read it to you. Exodus 16, beginning in verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel 
grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we had sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So, who were they complaining against? Well, the text tells us. It's Moses and Aaron. They were complaining against their leaders. But Moses, their leader, interprets it a little bit differently. Down in verse 8, he says, Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. How can he say that? when they were clearly grumbling against Moses and Aaron. Well, that's because Moses and Aaron did not lead the people out of Egypt. Ultimately. Moses and Aaron didn't lead the people into the wilderness. They didn't limit the food supply. They weren't testing their hearts. Yahweh was. Yahweh is the one that's in control, not Moses. And the same is true for each one of us here today. The Lord controls your boss. He governs the weather. He is even sovereign over that friend who hurt you. Not to mention the one million other things that we might complain about. Nothing, absolutely nothing, is outside of God's good control. And for us as believers... Nothing happens to us that will not ultimately result in more eternal glory, more joy, more conformity to Christ. Romans 8.28. 2 Corinthians 4.17. So when we complain then, we're leveling an accusation against God. Whether we realize it or not. We're implicitly accusing Him of lacking wisdom. We're finding fault with His goodness. We're implying that He is not sovereign or else He would change this. So grumbling doesn't just reveal that we're discontent. It does. Grumbling also reveals that we are deceived. It reveals that in this moment we do not trust the good and wise governance of our Heavenly Father. It reveals that we believed a lie about His character. It reveals that we have misinterpreted our circumstances according to our own wisdom that Proverbs 3 tells us not to do. So Paul says that in everything we do, it should be free of complaining, free of fighting, because he knows the sinister Unbelief that resides in our hearts that gives vent to the grumbling and complaining. But that doesn't make it any easier to fight it, does it? Not realizing that. Paul knows how prone we are to complaining and grumbling and taking offense. He knows how prone we are in our flesh to do that. So what he does in the rest of this text is he provides some incredible motivation, some help for us that will stimulate us to obedience in this area. And those are going to be our second and third observations here. He tells us that a grumble-free life 
confirms our identity as the true children of God. That's the second thing we can observe here in this text. It confirms our identity as the true children of God. And this intends to motivate us to not grumble. Look at this. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? That you may be or become blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. A grumble-free life, in other words, is confirmation of what we already are. It's confirmation of our identity as the true children of God. So, but it's easy to read this text and, and, and misinterpret what Paul's saying here. Okay? He's not saying, let's talk about this, he's not saying that the path to becoming God's child is to stop complaining. For Paul, the path to becoming God's child is by trusting Jesus alone. Faith alone. We've been seeing in Romans. If you've humbled yourself, if you've, been, if you've entrusted yourself to Jesus, you are already God's child. You're already a saint. He's already adopted you into His family by faith. You've become His child, not because of anything you've done, but because of what Christ has done. He lived and died for you, and His perfect life has been credited to you, His righteousness to your account, and now you are part of God's people. You're part of His very family by Christ alone. Very clear. So if He's not saying that, what is He saying? He's essentially saying this. You've got to learn to become, in real time, what you already have been given in Christ. His point is you have to learn in, to become in practice what you already have in possession. You've got to learn, in other words, to become a blameless child just like your father is blameless. So he says that filtering out this grumbling is the path to that. The more you do that, the more you remove grumbling, the more you repent, the more you will actually live out your identity in practice. That's his point. You're going to become, not an identity, but in practice, you're going to become actually blameless children. But it's not automatic. Just because we've been given this identity doesn't mean it's just going to happen in practice. No work on our part. You've got to work at not grumbling, thus the command. You've got to work at cultivating contentment. In fact, it's one tangible way that we literally work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What he said, just verses above that, that Nate read. Now, just to be clear, Paul understood that this was a process. Over in chapter 4, he says he learned the secret of contentment. And contentment is at the heart of not grumbling. So Paul himself learned this. He understood it was a process. He learned that there was a secret to it and that you've, we've got to Submit over time to the Lord in this area. And even though it's not automatic, even though it takes work, Paul is also very clear that progress in this area is very possible. And not only possible, but it's actually guaranteed. Why is that? Because back in verse 13, he says that God is powerfully at work within us. And that's why we can strive. Because God is working in us. When we strive not, not to complain, 
It's like we're getting on the, the, the train that's already cranked and moving and going in a direction. God is powerfully at work. He is here to help us. He is here to change us. And as you learn to trust Him in the daily grind, as you grumble less and less, you're going to take on the family resemblance more and more. You're going to start looking more like your elder brother Jesus, and Jesus is not a grumbler. Now, before we leave this observation, I want you to notice something really interesting about Paul's language in this text. When Paul calls us children without blemish, and then he goes on to say that we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, he's actually alluding to the Old Testament. That's language he's taking from the Old Testament. And specifically, he's taking it from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Very interesting. We don't have time to go into all the details, but he's making a stunning point that reinforces what we just talked about. Under the Old Covenant, the nation of Israel was chosen to to be God's son, God's children. And they were supposed to be blameless, like their father. And they were supposed to be blameless so that the nations would come to know the Lord. So they would bring blessing to the nations as the children of Abraham. But they failed. Instead of being blameless, they were actually, Moses says in Deuteronomy 32, defiled children. Anti-blameless. The opposite of blameless. Completely defiled children. They're described in Deuteronomy as a crooked and twisted generation. The same phrase in our text. And that's why Christ came. He came to accomplish, as true Israel, He came to accomplish what Israel failed to do. Could not do. And He came, as He accomplished it, to give Israel the Spirit of God. So that they could do what they were intended to do. Jeremiah 31, he's come to give them new hearts and put his spirit within them. And what we find out, joyfully, is that it's not just for Israel. It's for everyone, Joel 2, that calls on the name of the Lord. Now, everyone that's in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike, are no longer defiled. We're no longer disobedient children. No longer part of the twisted generation like Israel of old. We are blameless children now. So what's Paul doing here? Paul is telling us, as the new covenant people, the people living in fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, that as those who are part of this restoration in Christ, this should motivate us to stop grumbling. We are not like Israel under the Old Covenant. We often say that. We're just like Israel. We're not, actually. There's some parallels in the sense that we still sin like they sin, but there's a categorical difference. We have the Spirit of God. We are living in fulfillment in the New Covenant. We're not fully there. It's not fully here, but it has begun. We have new hearts which means we have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a new capacity 
Therefore, we should cease our grumbling. We should be different because we have the power to do so. We're not a twisted and crooked generation like Israel was then, like every unbeliever is today. We have been restored from that state, says Paul. From a state of constant grumbling and unbelief, we've been granted faith, and that should incentivize us to leave it all behind. We have the capacity to believe God, the capacity, the power to repent of our grumblings and actually live out our lives as the true children of God. What a privilege. That did not come from you. So for Paul, this is a huge motivator. But that's not all he says. He gives us another motivation, which is our our final observation. Paul says that as we work on our grumbling, our ministry to others will be enhanced tremendously. A grumble-free life enhances our ministry to others. He's building on everything he said. We'll, We'll drop down in the middle of verse 15. He says, Among whom, among this twisted generation... You shine as lights in the world by holding fast, or or probably better, holding forth the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul's point here builds on the last thing he he said. Our, Our observation number two there. As we become more and more blameless as a church, meaning as we complain less, We will function like Israel of old was supposed to function. We will be a light to others around us. Or as Paul says here, we will become like a a star that shines in the night sky. A star that's shining brighter and brighter. And the Lord will use us to extend His mission. Now, Paul is actually alluding again to the Old Testament in this part of the verse as well with this language about shining as lights or appearing as lights or or stars. It's imagery from Daniel 12. He alludes to Daniel 12 a couple times in Philippians. It's interesting. But it's imagery from Daniel 12. And it's... The context is super interesting. Okay? And it doesn't seem to really fit here. The context, Daniel predicts that God's people after their restoration and resurrection from the dead, that they're going to shine like the stars of heaven. You would think that's kind of talking about glorification, right? Like after the physical resurrection from the dead, shine like the stars of heaven. That's clearly the idea there in Daniel 12. And we don't have time to go into this fully right now, but here's the point. Paul is saying that because we are united to Christ, who has resurrected from the dead, Because we're united to Him, in a way, that shining has already started right here in the middle of the old creation, before the final resurrection of the dead. We've been resurrected spiritually, and our lives are beginning to reflect that resurrection right now. It's going to happen fully in the resurrection from the dead. But it's begun now. We're shining in part now. 
And we're really going to shine in the resurrection when Christ returns and we're made perfect. But the point here is that we're shining now by virtue of our union with Christ. And we're shining brighter and brighter as we put away our complaining. As we increase in Christ's likeness. And he goes on to continue to elaborate this point in verse 16. How we're going to shine brighter. He says, by holding fast or holding forth to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So we shine more brightly as we hold Hold something. Now, quick side note on translation. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV. It translates this verb as holding fast to, like you're kind of holding on to it. We're holding fast to the word of life. Um, but it could also be translated just as legitimately as holding forth, has both meanings, different contexts. And the context determines which one it is. So holding forth, like you're, like you're holding something out for the taking. Like you're holding out a cup of water to a marathon runner to take as they're running by. You know, there like, you go. And he grabs it and drinks it and keeps going. And I think that holding forth idea, that, that, that fits better in the context and in the whole context of Philippians. Paul's saying that we shine bright not just as we hold on to the gospel, as we persevere, that's true, but as we hold out the gospel. As we make it known to others. Paul calls it here the word of life, meaning it's the word that gives life. This is the language of mission. He's talking about the mission of the church, both inside of it and outside of it. This life-giving word that we have in edification and evangelism. He's talking about our ministry outside the church in evangelism as we share the gospel with others, as we plant other churches. And he's talking about the ministry inside the church, the ministry of edification, as we help each other grow up to full maturity in Christ. And it's this mission, Paul says, that gets enhanced as the church filters out its grumbling. But how? How does that work? How, how does it work if, that I, if I stop grumbling, the ministry is actually going to thrive? Well, let's think that through. All right, I'm, I'm going to give you a long example here, and I'm sorry to the men, but I'm going to kind of hammer you for a second, okay? Just by way of illustration. Principles apply across the board. Let's take a hypothetical situation that I'm sure no man's ever faced. Say this husband and father, he hates his job. He's working for an unreasonable boss. He's underpaid. He's often mistreated. And he pendulums in his heart between being angry and anxious. He's angry because he can't believe that he's treated this way, and he's anxious because he feels trapped. He's applied for other jobs, but so far he hasn't had any leads. So when he gets home, his wife kind of, she knows the drill. She knows what to expect. There's the nightly rant, you know, and sometimes if it's been really hard, if the day's been tough, that even spills out in front of the kids at dinner. 
what is the ultimate problem? Let's just kind of use this as a test case. What's the ultimate problem? All right, it's definitely not his job. Even though in his job he's in a really tough spot. He's in a really hard circumstance. It's not even his complaining, as sinful as it is and serious as it is. His ultimate problem is the man's discontent heart. His refusal to trust God. His resentment of his Lord, ultimately for, for, in his mind, trapping him in this terrible situation. As long as he is resenting the Lord in his heart, guess what's not going to be happening? There's not going to be any mission happening in this guy's life. The very mission of his life, his purpose for his, being saved by Christ, is in jeopardy. Let's think about that. Think about how his ministry is being jeopardized. It's being jeopardized in his own life, in his own heart, right? So day in and day out, he has an opportunity to produce glorious fruit. Glorious fruit. To become a different person. Every day. A little more each day. And he is missing it. His good God has tailor-made this job situation to produce some of the most beautiful and eternal fruit in this man's heart. And this man is stiff-arming the Lord at every turn. He's resisting the Holy Spirit's work in his life. And as he resists, he's not only hardening and harming himself, but he's also poisoning his home. He's tempting his wife, the wife he's supposed to cherish and shepherd and love. He's tempting her away from her Lord. He's tempting her even to resent the Lord in her own difficult circumstances, which I'm sure are many. He's modeling for his kids that Christ cannot be trusted to take care of our family. So the home is being impacted, his mission in the home. What about the church? When he comes to church... He's likely still just preoccupied with himself. He's preoccupied with his own needs. He sings, but his heart's far from the Lord. He listens to preaching, but he's distracted because Monday's coming. So he's shutting himself off from the life-giving edification of the body. He's likely not using his gifts in service to the body either. Or if he is, he's serving for some other motive than love for his Lord. Beyond that, he's likely missing all kinds of opportunities that are right in front of him to influence other younger men in the congregation. And when he hears one of his friends complaining about their job, instead of helping him work through it and coming alongside him and rejoice, helping this man rejoice and trust God, what does, this, what does, our, what does our friend do? He commiserates. He helps this man feel justified in his sin. And overall, the church is not strengthened. It's, this man is not shining like a light, and he's influencing others in the congregation to dim theirs as well. He's likely completely unaware of this. But he's actively working against the mission of Christ in his church. 
Now let's flip it around. Let's say that this man hears the warning that his grumbling mouth indicates. It's like a check engine light, right? The, the engine's, something's wrong. Let's say he sees the warning. Let's say he's convicted. Let's say he repents. He humbles himself. Nothing about his circumstance has changed. But everything about his heart, his perspective has changed. Now, instead of fighting the Lord, he's entrusting himself to the Lord's promises. That he is good and he's working all things, including this job, for his greatest good. Romans 8.28 He now believes that God knows his plight, that God cares, and that God has a plan. And this man is ready to yield his heart, takes work, but yield his heart in faith to the promises and character of his God. He sees each new challenge now not as some reason for self-pity, but as an opportunity. An opportunity for fruit. An opportunity for conformity to Christ. An opportunity to walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand. Ephesians 2.10 An opportunity to minister. So if that internal mind renewal is happening, guess what else is going to happen? What will happen in his home? Well, instead of poisoning everyone with his unbelief, he's now going to come to his wife and his kids in broken confession. Not only will he seek God's forgiveness, but he's going to seek theirs as well. I've not led you. I poisoned a well. Please forgive me. He'll solicit their help too. Even the kids. They'll help him see when he's complaining. And he will work to not react when they point it out, no matter their motive. Instead, he's going to further humble himself and receive their correction. And perhaps for the first time, both his wife and his kids will have a good model. A model of humility. So precious. It's the life of a home. And as he starts renewing his mind to see his situation differently, he'll start seeing God's good purposes in the job. He'll start by thanking God for the opportunities for fruit. And as he's working at this, as he's, as he's doing, there's one, as one pastor says, the trench work in his heart, day in and day out, in the job, pretty soon what's going to happen is a co-worker is going to pull him aside and say, how do you do this? How do you stay calm when your boss is yelling at you like that? How do you maintain such a good attitude? Man, he doesn't deserve that. He treats you so bad. Guess what's just been created? We call it an alley-oop for the gospel, right? He just tossed you one. You could say, this man, hypothetically, could say, how do I respond like this? Well, it's not for me, I can tell you that. 
It's because I have a heavenly boss that's higher than my earthly boss. And he controls everything. He controls and even works these evils for good in my life. Can I tell you about him? Holding forth the word of life to an unbeliever when he doesn't complain. How about in the home? We've already talked about the humility side. Before there's much progress, even, there's, even the humility is progress. But let's talk about as he starts to make progress. He's not perfect. Far from it. He will keep complaining at times. But he is humble. He owns it when he does. Get this. He's given up the cowardice of blaming it on his job. That's not true anyway. Because Paul, others, Jesus, has said that sin comes from our hearts. So he's done, he's done with the cowardice of blaming it on other people and other, other things. He knows that it's coming from him, but he also knows that Christ is with him, that Christ forgives, and that Christ helps. So he's doing the hard work of renewing his mind with God's promises. And now he's starting to have, guess what? Insight, insight for both his wife and his kids. He's tender with his wife when she complains. Why? Because he knows how hard it is to not complain. He knows how difficult the repentance process is. So he's tender. He's becoming more patient. And yet, he also knows how to lead her in repentance. Because he knows the path. He knows the passages are dog-eared. He's taken his heart to the mat. They're underlined, wept over, tear stains. He knows them. They're in him. He is repenting himself, and now he has insight for his family to lead them. He's holding forth the word of life to his family. And how about the church? Let's take that friend, that buddy of his that was complaining about his own job. He's going to be able to to come alongside that friend now and say, brother, hard job situations, that's tough. I get it. It's so tempting to complain. But let me show you, let me help you see what the Lord showed me about my heart, that I'm actually deceived. And let's try to maybe see how this works in your life. He's willing in love now because he can see the needs of others, he can hear it in their lives, to come toward them in love to help them. And guess what's going to happen over time? Of a consistent plotting. Over time, the church was going to shine brighter because of this man's influence. Because of the one act of repentance. People are going to come to faith because of this man. People will be strengthened by this man and the influence will compound pretty soon. Because that's the way the Lord designed it to work. It spreads. This man is now on track to use his gifts and to discover them. And pretty soon the Lord's going to cause such a surplus that it's time to start planting new churches. And who knows? Maybe the Lord will open up a new job opportunity for this man so he can relocate and be part of that church plant. 
So a lot of ministry, my point here, is a lot of ministry is threatened if we ignore our complaints. Opportunity for fruit is squandered because we're continuing on in unbelief. In a very real way, less churches are planted the more we stay preoccupied with ourselves. But the reverse is also true. When we get after our heart attitudes and the words coming out, when we learn to rejoice in Christ, always, when we learn the secret of contentment, Paul says tremendous ministry will occur. And that's motivating to me because I complain just like you do. And I'm going to keep complaining unless these these motives are etched into my mind. So let's go back to where we started. How has Paul adjusted your spiritual radar this morning? I know he heightened mine when I worked through this text a few weeks ago. And uh, he continues to recalibrate it, even up to last night. So we don't want to let our grumbling slip through undetected. So ask yourself today, is there a situation in your life that the Lord has put his finger on? Is there a situation that tempts you to grumble? If you can't think of any, ask someone close to you. But don't just stop with the words. Okay? Remember what grumbling reveals. It reveals a discontent heart. It reveals unbelief. It reveals that you've been deceived. How? You need to be able to identify that. Trace it back to your heart, back to trusting God and His promises. And then ask yourself, if I really believe that God is good in this situation, if I really believe that He's in control, if I really believe Romans 8.28, that all things are working out for my good, how would that change how I act? What I say? And then work to obey. Think through what opportunities have I missed, and now how can I capitalize on them in good works? And as you do this, as you reflect and repent and begin this process and continue this process, for many of you who've who've been at this for a long time, please do not walk away from here discouraged. God is working in you. He's working in us to make us a people more content, a people who are more joyful, a people who ultimately are more fruitful. God wants you to succeed. He is with you. He wants you to turn many to righteousness in one way or another. He wants you to hold forth the gospel, to see people saved and sent to the nations. And it all starts, Paul says, by stopping our grumbling. Amen? Let's pray.